Last week, uh, we began looking at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and we spent time in uh, the first 12 verses. If you actually have a Bible, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn there. We'll move past them this morning. We looked at uh, the first 12 verses of of chapter 1. And the first thing that we, we saw was that this is a letter written to people who are experiencing trial, who are experiencing suffering. They are people who are in exile. And we noted that it's, this is not uncommon, right? That this is the context in which a lot of the New Testament is penned. Persecution, suffering, trial, and difficulty. And 1 Peter 1 was no exception. These are people who have been exiled. Uh, perhaps Jews being exiled from the holy city of Jerusalem and then find themselves uh, in Asia Minor and are, and are wondering if and when they'll ever be able to return. Wondering uh, if God has abandoned them. Wondering where he is. And if you were here, then you, you heard that it was into this reality that Peter reminded them of their identity. And he reminded them by calling them elect exiles. Elect exiles. And we mentioned how, just like Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, uh, finds the term happy camper to be an oxymoron, because the only happy camper is the camper leaving the campsite, right? Uh, You don't like to sleep outside in the woods and burn vacation days and get covered with a rash. Uh, There are no such things as happy campers, except those who are leaving the campsite. Well, we said in like fashion, this term elect exile, it seems contradictory. It seems like an oxymoron, and yet it's Peter's way of reminding them of their true identity. That present circumstances don't define us. That when things are going well, we can't take the credit, but also when things are going poorly, when we find ourselves in the throes of adversity, whatever it might be, that we can't say that God has abandoned us because we have an identity that goes beyond, that transcends our present circumstances. We are elect, though we might be in exile. So what does define us, though, then, is our importance, that we have been placed in the very center of God's plan of salvation. And we saw that, if you looked in verse 2, chapter 1, it says, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, all of this is for obedience to Jesus Christ, and we've been sprinkled with his blood. You see, what defines is not our trials. What defines is not our present circumstances, but the fact that we have been shown unbelievable importance by God. We've been placed on the highest priority by God. In fact, all of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, were at work in our salvation and continue to work in our lives. Today, we see God as the architect of our salvation. We see Christ as the atoner who purchases our salvation. And we see the Spirit as our applier. He's the one who applies those benefits in and through our lives. And so all of this Peter used to remind us that we have a destiny, that we are co-heirs with Christ. If you look in verse 4, it says that we've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven while it's being guarded by God's power. That's our destiny. That's our inheritance. And then finally, towards the end of those verses, in in verses 10 through 12, uh, Peter reminded us that 
far from persecution or trial or, or tragedy, far from those things um, being a sign of God's disfavor or far from those being a sign of God's abandonment, we're reminded in those verses that we're actually in the very center of God's redemptive plan. If you look at verse 10, it says, concerning our salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but us. And the things that have now been announced to us through those who preach the good news to you and to us by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Here at Coral Ridge, we find ourselves in the very center, in the culmination of redemptive history. As Christ has resurrected from the grave, he's given us a living hope, and he is now building the kingdom that the very gates of hell will not prevail against. And so what was amazing is that we began to see how this is a letter written by Peter to people who are suffering. And if you remember in Peter's own life, he was one who saw suffering and trial as a stumbling block. When Christ reminded him that the Messiah must suffer and die, Peter said, not on my watch, not as, not as, not as long as I'm around. And it was the very stumbling block for Peter that enabled him to first give a confession of Christ, but then to sort of back away from it. And Christ told him to get behind him. Satan, right? Because he doesn't have in mind the things of God. And yet we see a couple years later, a few years later, this disciple, this apostle who struggled has now been transformed and he becomes the apostle of hope who can write to us in our times of trial and remind us of our destiny, our inheritance, our identity. And so all of that momentum now pushes us into the second half of chapter 1. And we'll read, look at verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. See, Peter, the apostle of hope, after grounding our identity in the first half of chapter one, now leads us here into the second half. 
And he wants us to see just exactly how this identity manifests itself in our lives. And he'll, he'll point out, and I want to kind of break it into four sections, he'll point out that this identity manifests itself in our lives through hope, through holiness, through wonder, and through assurance. Through hope, through holiness, through wonder, and through assurance. If you look at verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter here uses uh, the language of, of intoxication. He uses the language of intoxication and sobriety, and it's intentional on his part. Um, if you've ever had too much to drink or, or been around somebody who has, I won't do a show of hands to say which category you fall into, but if you've ever had too much to drink or been around somebody who has, you'll know that uh, it's kind of like being around a toddler, right? Uh, I mean, just basic life skills are forgotten, right? Uh, you shouldn't go and just hug random strangers. Uh, don't give them a complete hug, right? Don't uh, cross the street just without looking. Uh, potty is only for the toilet, right? Uh, you have to kind of remind, remind them of that. Um, you may even have to bathe the person if it gets real bad. Uh, they just, basic, basic things are, are forgotten. Or sometimes, you know, just like a, like a toddler, they, you can become just like fascinated with, with your hand, you know, just kind of look at it. Um, all these just faculties, right, are, are suspended uh, for a time. Basic, basic things are forgotten. Things we know to be true are forgotten. You see, Peter is writing his letter uh, to an audience of people who know the gospel. They know the gospel. They know that God is on his throne. They know that God providentially uh, cares for all things. And yet they've allowed themselves to ingest ideas of fear or ideas of uncertainty, ideas of doubt. And it's stripped from them this basic understanding. It's taken from them things they know to be true. And they begin to ask themselves, is God really in control? Does God really have a plan uh, in our lives? Does he have a plan for this church? Does he have a plan for the world? Because it seems quite chaotic. It seems like it's going off the rails. Is God even still in charge? And if he is, what is he up to? And you see, Peter wants them, he wants the knowledge that Jesus, in his resurrection, has literally begun the work of restoration. To be that, like, that, that, that strong cup of coffee and, and greasy late-night diner food that sobers them up and that calls them back to what they know to be true. You see, if you've ever... Um, like worked on a house or, you know, you're, you're, on a, you're on a project me right now where you're, you're renovating a house, right? You're renovating something in your house. You know that it's the middle of the project that's always the hardest to press forward on. Think about that, right? When you first start the project, the house might look terrible or the room or the kitchen, whatever you're working on, it looks terrible. So you decide to redo it. But then there's like that halfway point where things look worse than when you started, right? Wires are coming out of the ceiling, uh, tiles everywhere. You, know, you can see the rafters maybe. Uh, and it looks, what is going on here? 
And yet it's that midway point where it looks worse, almost. We have to press forward. We press, we press through that. You see, what Peter is reminding his audience of here is that the resurrection of Christ, the living hope that's come through the resurrection, has set the clock on God's renovation of the world. That he is actively setting things right. He is actively defeating death and sin and the grave. But we find ourselves in the middle of it. And trials keep coming. And doubts keep coming. And tragedies keep coming. But we know in the back of our minds, we know that God has a plan. We know that he's given us a living hope that will not fade. And it's into this context that Peter wants them to sober up and to be reminded of what they know to be true. You see, he uses this phrase, if you look down, um, verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. The image here is literally of a, of a, of a first century Jewish man. Like, they wear robes, like hiking up his robe, kind of pulling the robe above his knees, girding it up. We don't use that word very often, but he's girding up the robe uh, so that he can... He can run. So he's prepared for action. And the image is the same image that we get in the parable of the prodigal son. When the father, he sees the son returning from his excesses. He sees the son returning from his his sin and his disgrace. And he sees him in the distance. And what does the father do? We know the story. He hikes up his robe. He prepares himself for action. And he runs and he throws himself on the son and welcomes him home. No questions asked. He welcomes them into the arms of his grace. You see, that's the same image we have here, preparing your minds for action. Peter is saying, remember the love of the Father. Remember his zealous running after you and your sins and redemption of you. And allow that hope to be what fuels you through the difficult times. You know the lyrics of this song well, but I think it's, it's poignant here. Through many dangers, toils, and snares... I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be, as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. You see, we're called to a hope that never fails. But in verses 14 uh, through 17, you see there's this, there's this urging to holiness. There's a call to holiness. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And you might have asked yourself, what good does it do To encourage a persecuted audience, what good does it do to encourage those who are going through trials? What good does it do to encourage them ethically? Why would Peter here go out of his way to encourage a suffering people uh, ethically or, or morally? And I think the reason he does that is because you know this to be true psychologically as well. When we find ourselves in the midst of trial... It's in those moments that we begin to wonder if God is really in control. And if we begin to wonder if God is really in control, we start saying, well, if he's not, I mean, if he's off his throne, then 
Does it even matter how I live? Does it even matter if I'm obedient? I mean, if God's not in charge, if he's not in control, then it doesn't matter what I do. And, and, and there's this sort of unraveling that begins to happen. And it's, it's into the midst of that sort of psychological pitfall that Peter reminds his audience once again that they should be holy, they should pursue holiness because God is holy. And that, that, that might say, okay, that's good news because, you see, we've been welcomed into God's family. We've now been adopted as his children. And so Peter is reminding them that trials haven't changed their identity. They're still the adopted children of God. They haven't been changed positionally. They're still in God's family. And so if that's the case, they haven't, if, if things haven't changed positionally for them, then he's saying, then don't allow things to unravel practically. Don't allow things to change practically, but rather live out of your identity as God's adopted children. You see, if you notice, um, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He doesn't say, if you don't. He's already grounded their identity. They're a children of God who Father, Son, and Spirit have spared no expense to ransom. And now because of that identity, that unchanging identity, that unchanging inheritance they have, Peter urges them to keep the faith, urges them to hold fast to their confession. And that's the difference in the Christian life. And we know this. We've, we've been taught that well here at Coral Ridge. That's the difference in the Christian life. It's the difference between living for approval and living from approval. And Peter says, you are the children of God, given a destiny, given an inheritance. And so now we live out of that. The, the best example I can think of practically is with my own kids. I have a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter, uh, many of you know. And it's amazing how when you're at home, you can uh, get them to, to do like anything. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll sing, they'll dance, they always want to do things, right, to entertain. Uh, and they'll just, they'll, they'll do incredible things. And it's hilarious. We have such a good time, right? But yet when you are sometimes out or have people over, and this is not always true, of course, sometimes they'll be even more disruptive or entertaining. But a lot of times you have people over and you say, hey, Wyatt, sing that song that you were singing earlier. And they get they get shy, and they, they, they get coy, right? And they, they hide behind your leg. Uh, what's the difference? Well, when they're in the house, there's freedom. They know nothing changes. They could mess up the song, nothing changes, right? And there's just this freedom to live uh, freely. But yet, when there's that prospect of disapproval, right? Someone now they don't, under, they don't know, and they want to perform in front of them, that prospect of disapproval, it, it changes everything. And here, Peter is saying, you've been approved. You're the adopted, unchanging children of God. And he wants him to live practically out of that position. So when we find ourselves in the midst of trial, we find ourselves in the midst of, of tragedy, we're called to hope. We're called to holiness. And then we're also called to wonder. Look at verse 18. Actually, go back a verse. Let's look at 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile, knowing the price that was paid for your salvation. You hear that word fear, and you say, well, what's Peter getting at? He's not getting at this fear of condemnation. Because we know from other places that that's been taken away. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's the fear? You see, it's this reverent fear. It's this awestruck, wonder-filled fear of the condemnation that we deserved, but now understanding it's been taken away. And that fuels our lives. He says, live your life, conduct yourselves with holy reverence, holy fear, reverential fear of the Lord. Why? As you remember the price that was paid for your salvation. You weren't purchased, you weren't ransomed, you weren't saved with perishable things, silver, gold, money, the wealth of the world, but with the precious blood of the Holy One. The precious blood of Christ. And if that doesn't get us on its own, if the price alone doesn't wow us, doesn't restore wonder to our lives, then the timing should. Think think about it. He says, um, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you and of me, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead. You see, the father knew the price of our salvation, the precious blood of his own son, and he knew it before the foundation of the world and yet still paid it for us. Still paid it. And that should, that should blow us away. That should make us be filled with wonder and awe. I mean, think about it. Think about it in your own lives, right? Uh, there's times where you've paid a large amount of money for things that if you just had more time to think about it, you would have not paid it, right? Buyer's remorse. You go out and buy that flat screen TV or whatever and, and you realize, man, maybe I could have waited a little bit longer and gotten it on a discount. You know, you go out and buy a car. Ah, if I would have thought about it a little bit longer, I wouldn't have paid quite so much. Uh, one silly example, I think I've shared it before. I was at Whole Foods down south, the one here on Federal, when it first opened and Whole Foods was like revelatory, you know? I had no idea what this place was. So I stroll in, ignorant, but starry-eyed, and I walk up to the salad bar, which is also a hot bar, but it's also like a bakery, and there's this unbelievable, just, it's like a cornucopia, you know, of food before me. And I walk in there to Whole Foods, and I see the price there, and it says like $6.99. $6.99? For this? It's unbelievable. So I go over, I take one of the plastic containers, and I fill that thing like heaping. I mean, it's two containers worth of food, maybe three. It's just this mountain of food, salad and hot foods and trying to get like a soup on the side and a loaf of bread, all this kind of stuff. And I bring it to the counter. I go, seven bucks? This is the best deal in town. They scan it through. No joke. It's like $36. Go, $36? And I realized, oh, it was six ninety nine. Look a little bit more carefully, right? The sign six ninety nine slash pound, right? Seven dollars a pound. 
So think, I got like a six pound salad. <laughs> Ridiculous, right? If I would have known, right? If I would have thought more carefully about the price, then I certainly wouldn't have paid that for what I was given. It's amazing about our salvation. It's amazing about the gospel. It's the price that was paid for our ransom. The price that was paid for our forgiveness, for our cleansing. The very blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish, and it was a price that the Father decided to pay before the very foundations of the world, before time began. He set his affections on you, and he paid the price for your ransom. And we know he did these things because he decided nothing, nothing would separate us from the love that he has for us in Christ Jesus. Nothing would separate him from the love that he has for his children. And so it's that hope, it's that knowledge that then drive us into the last few verses. And they should produce in us tremendous assurance. The wonder of our salvation, the wonder of the price paid, the wonder of the economy of God's salvation, the timing of God's salvation, all of those things, when we're in the moment of trial, when we're in the moment of doubt or uncertainty, it should fuel within us an assurance, a tremendous assurance. And we see that here in in verses 22 and following. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love each other earnestly from a pure heart. He reminds us again, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, unchanging, you've been given a permanent birth, a permanent rebirth through the Spirit, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, so basically everything around us will one day fade away, everything will fade, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you, the gospel of your salvation. I would be remiss if I didn't do this. Jerry Seinfeld, he has a bit, right, where he talks about the expiration date of milk. You may have heard this. And you're even thinking right now, maybe I need milk. Right? Honey, do we have milk? Maybe we'll pick some up on the way home. Right? Everybody's always wondering if they have milk. Because you never want to get to the fridge, right? Pour a bowl of cereal, go to the carton, oh, and it's too light. Too light. Right? And you go to pour it, and there's not enough milk. Everybody's always concerned with milk. But you don't want to have too much milk, because if it goes past the expiration date, that's terrifying. Right? You've been there. You're like two days past the date, but you're still going for it. And the spoon is trembling as it comes out of the bowl, right? What's going to happen to me? This two-day-old milk? Uh, And Seinfeld talks about, how do they know? How do they know? That's the the definite, exact date, right? And they brand it on the carton, right? March 17th. I mean, how do they know, right? Do the cows tip them off? I mean, what's happening, right? That's the definite, exact date. Milk has an expiration, You see, what Peter, follow me here, what Peter 
is doing here in these last few verses is he's reminding us the grass withers, the flower fades, everything around us will fall and falter, but one thing will remain. One thing will never change. One thing is immune from the forces around us, the forces of the world, the ups and downs of life. One thing will remain, and it's the word of the Lord. But then he defines it, which is beautiful, and he says, and what is this word? That's a fancy Bible phrase, right? What is this word? Let's get specific. And he says, it's the word of the good news that was preached to you. It was the word of the gospel. You see all of the things that we've been given, our identity, our inheritance, they're all resting on that unchanging word of pardon and word of approval that was spoken over you at the cross, that was spoken over you in the blood of Jesus. And that's the thing that will never change. That's a thing that will never, ever fade. And that gives us tremendous, tremendous assurance. What is this word? It's the gospel. And here at other places as we close, you've heard this before, it is finished. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far have your sins been removed from you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Christ says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This saying is trustworthy and true that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You were dead in your trespasses, but God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, is from Colossians, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I will never leave you or forsake you. And finally, Christ reminds us in his word, the word that never changes. Though all else fails and fades, the word that never changes, Christ says, in this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, for I have overcome the world.